0: Hello, and a very warm welcome back to Ryan Stacey's Silver Screams. I apologize for the long delay in bringing you new episodes. Life hit the skids, kids, and I had to take some time to figure out what my next moves are. The silver lining here is that I now have plenty of time to dedicate to bringing you more content, more stories, more histories, and her-stories from horror's cinematic vaults. This week we cover the last of our stories from this season set in the nineteen seventies. A small independent movie shot in Texas by Texans. This little engine that could fought through some grueling production schedules, a blown attempt at getting a PG rating, a horrifying source of inspiration ripped from Wisconsin headlines, right down to its distributors. Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre would start its journey as the most controversial film of all time. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother Franklin. It is all the more tragic than that they were young, but had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have ever wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history the Texas Jane Saw Massacre. you might have thought those words were true. John Larrakut's reading in the opening is haunting, a foreboding tone letting you know that what you're about to see is truly fucked up. And in many ways, that legend still holds true today. Did you know that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is based on a true story? It is, and it isn't. Kim Hengel and Toe Hooper have always been transparent about this fact, I just seem to feel it is often misconstrued. Sure. Events similar to Chainsaw actually happened, but it wasn't in Texas. It happened in Plainfield, Wisconsin, and the real-life murderer that inspired the eventual character of Leatherface was a hermit by the name of Ed Gain. Gain was arrested in 1957. After it was discovered he had not only murdered a couple local women, he had been exhuming bodies for his own nefarious and sexual appetites, including the corpse of his mother. He had constructed furniture and decor from human bone, fashioned clothing items with human anatomy, including a women's flesh suit he would wear when he'd disassociate and prowl the grounds of the Gain farm as mother. But there were no signs of a family feasting on barbecued humans. If parts of Gain's story sound familiar to you, they probably should. Both Norman Bates of Psycho and Buffalo Bill of Silence of the Lambs, were inspired by this national horror story. I had to begin here with this episode, because I wanted to speak on this misconception first, and get mentioning Ed Gain out of the way, early on. This is not a podcast about true crime or serial killers, and I apologize if this segment was triggering for any of you, my dear listeners. The lie that the movie was true is one told time and time again to cinema-goers. Hooper, according to a 2008 DVD interview, that lie was in response to the changes to culture and counterculture happening in the early 1970s. This was an entire generation of young people who were speaking out against being lied to by their elected leaders. I spoke of this back in Episode 1. This was when the glamour of Hollywood movies were dying, and that gritty realism everyone saw nightly on the televised news began bleeding into entertainment. The production schedule of this film was equal to its budget. Tight. Employing a Texan cast and crew, Tobe Hooper and writer Kim Ingle had gotten the money for the film after conceiving it during the, their early days at UT Austin. was acquired through friends, while most of those working on the film accepted deferred pay in favor of points off the back end once Texas Chainsaw sold to a distributor. And where else would they shoot? But in and around Austin, Texas, in the summer of 1973. The film began shooting in July, and would run 12 to 16 hour days, seven days a week, for an entire month. If days off were to be given, the production ran the chance of having to re-rent their production equipment. Temperatures regularly broke 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the day. If you've ever experienced a Texas summer sun, it is intense. The set was decorated with actual animal carcasses and innards, and it should go without saying there was no air conditioning or ventilation. Conditions like this are not unheard of for me. I'm an indie filmmaker, and sometimes we have to do some crazy shit to pull off our work but a film that works with the money that Chainsaw had, even when adjusted for inflation, shouldn't legally be able to do the things Hooper's cast and crew achieved. I'm almost sure it still happens today, but for 1974, the real blood splattered on the walls and dripped into bowls. That is actually Marilyn Burns' finger bleeding, by the way. It was a hazardous but indelible mark, made in movies. The following film has been rated PG. Bruntal guidance is suggested some material may not be suitable for pre-teenagers in 1974 this was the rating right below r and it was the sought after rating for the texas chainsaw massacre toby hooper had been editing and re-editing chainsaw to get it they'd left out explicit blood and gore profanity nudity and sex all the mpaa could say was that the violence was too much and eventually hooper had to accept and release with his r rating That rating could damn ticket sales since viewership would be limited to audiences age 17 and over the standard for R or X rated releases. Horror's bread and butter is always in the teenage audiences turning up, but the rating wouldn't be what stood in the way of them seeing massive chainsaw profits. The now defunct Bryanston Distributing Company released films in the early 1970s, including John Carpenter's debut Dark Star. It was run by three men, two of whom had familial ties to the Colombian Mafia. At the time, Bryanston was best known for releasing the infamous erotic film Deep Throat in 1972. They agreed to purchase Chainsaw's distribution rights, a deal with the devil that would eventually create more hostility on an already begrudged production. Receiving mixed to bad reviews from critics, the film's controversial material didn't hurt its performance, After the production costs and post-production concerns, the budget capped out at around $300,000, according to the Internet Movie Database. Chainsaw grossed a whopping $30 million globally at the end of its theatrical run. Percentages had been bought and moved around, eventually leaving the filmmakers with their remaining promised cut. They had just over $8,000 to divvy up. The cast and crew were pissed, and rightfully so. Many of them had endured a torturous shoot that drove many of them to literal madness. As it was a low-budget film, they really had taken those aforementioned back-end deals. Now it looked like that's exactly where they were going to get it to. Many involved were hosed out of these shares of profits by this company, creating a resentment that they would carry with them for years to come. This mess was not corrected until the film's rights, which by the late 1980s were now a franchise, purchased by New Line Cinema. Finally, Hooper was making a decent share of profits to pay his original cast and crew out, which is strange to think about when you consider by this time Hooper had helmed other cinematic successes like his collaboration with producer Steven Spielberg on Poltergeist. Stories like Hooper and Hinkle's are unheard of in Hollywood, often independent filmmakers are taken advantage of, and we usually learn too late that some of their best work, their hardest work, isn't something they can fondly look back on. The resentment of distribution deals stings, make that success hard. Everyone worked really, really hard on Chainsaw, and sure some of them sung long-term or later-in-life successes. One just cannot help but feel some sympathy for these artists. Money may not be able to buy happiness, but it sure is a great fucking start. When the film released, it was a smash success. Everyone was talking about the new scariest movie ever made. Many vacillate still today between this release and the prior years The Exorcist. Critics and by proxy mothers alike were revolted by it. People walked out of cinemas, either enraged or too grossed out to finish it. But on the flip side of this, conversations were being had about the symbolism in the story. Was it actually an allegory for capitalism? Or Big Brother and the lies it tells us? The youth of America felt it, they saw it, and loved it as a vessel of sticking it to the man. Young filmmakers around the world were mobilized to start making their own movies. Don't wait for Hollywood to come, it's dying anyway. Studies have been conducted by scholars and critics alike on the perturbing effect the film had on viewers, especially when it came to the violence specifically inflicted on the horror genre's female characters which was a set of conversations that would never end throughout the decade. Extreme violence against women is a trope that really got its roots in the 1970s cinema. This was the decade that birthed the rape and revenge subgenre of horror, after all, with The Last House on the Left and I Spit on Your Grave. Chainsaw is definitely brethren to its successor, since it is only the women of the story who are brutalized and tortured, while their male counterparts meet quick ends. With all of these conversations and films releasing left and right, society really just wanted to know, why do we watch this shit? Well, for many reasons actually. In terms of prevalence of violence against women, and fortunately it seems that as a society we are wired to buy into the trope. People are more sympathetic and dialed into a female character in peril because we have always been led to believe that women are the weaker sex. But if that's the case, shouldn't all of the male characters live to the end? I, dear viewer, can only come down to that assumption. It's a pseudo-sexual choice. They think women look cuter covered in blood. As far as why do we watch horror in general? Well, we dig the adrenaline from being scared. We feel safe knowing that it's better these shrieking, half-naked characters than us. Watching a horror movie can be an escape for the human brain, causing certain chemical reactions akin to working out, or riding a roller coaster, or having sex. And obviously for some, the pseudo sexual thing that we won't delve further into. <laughs> well, because you know, this isn't that kind of show. Thanks for listening. Oh, it's so good to be back writing these episodes and sharing them with you. Please tell everyone you know about this show, however you're able, through social media or word of mouth. Follow me on Instagram at Real Brian S. Or on Twitter at Stacy Screams. This series is written and narrated by myself. It is produced, edited, and with music by Sean Burkett. Our friend and concept media films collaborator Rob Collins appeared as John Larroquette's narrator. Come back next time with the first episode of our second season, In Stitches, Dressing for Scares, where we'll be taking a look at some of the most iconic costuming created for the horror genre, where I'll begin with 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula. So until then...